Hello, everyone. This is Brunch with Brent. Uh, I'm so pleased to be joined today by Elizabeth K. Joseph. Uh, Liz, how are you? How are you doing today? Thank you so much for for joining me. Yeah, I'm doing good. So, for those who don't know you, you're currently a developer advocate at IBM, and I think you've been there a little while now. Is that right? That's right. Uh, I started at the end of April last year, um, which means for me, I've been there a little while. But whenever I talk to other IBMers, they're all like, "Oh, you're new." Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about uh, you know how you like. It. I know some people move around quite a bit, and it sounds like you've done that. And I will uh, bring us into a little bit of your history. You've 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 touched a lot of different things, which we'll dive into. Um, but for others, yeah, sitting sitting tight. Uh, I guess IBM has a reputation for that. Um, you know, having being in the same place for a decade is not unheard of, right? At, at the IBM crew. Yeah, and I wouldn't say I, I've I've moved around a lot, like every two year, two to four years, really. So I get myself like settled in, and maybe I'll stay with IBM for longer. But yeah, that sounds pretty reasonable. Like, there's something about seeing different cultures and different uh, ways that um, projects and corporations and companies run things that I think is really a wonderful uh, way to inform the work that you're doing. So I'm. I'm not against jumping around at all. Well, says the freelancer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And since I work on a lot of open source software, um, it's been interesting to be able to work on different projects. And some of it I do for fun and some of it I do for paid work. So it's been interesting to be able to mix that up a bit as I go through my different roles. Right. Um, could you walk us through then some of the things that you've done for fun? Yeah, so I have like this sort of stereotypical like nerd in high school. I had my own computer. I started like saving up my um like my the little work jobs I had as a kid. Like I'd save up my money and I'd buy a new computer and I'd play around with it. And I wasn't really doing programming at the time, but that's kind of what got me into the space of playing around with computers and eventually into my career. So I'd say like the first interesting thing um, I did was um, like I, I built an IRC server and then I would, this was like the geo city days. So I was like building my own websites. And one of the things that building my own website in the late nineties showed me is that HTML is all open source like on websites. And so I was able to look at source code on websites and then build my own website and those of us who were building websites at the time, this was very common. Um, we were totally just like stealing each other's codes all the time as soon as we found some new cool one. And of course, I was like in high school, so it wasn't cool. It was like, I don't know, blinking and Java and like really weird things. <laughs> but that that sort of like was a segue into me starting to get involved with open source. So I did my first open source project commit in like probably around 2004 or so. And it was to an instant messaging gateway called Biddleby. And uh, I instant messengers, you know, from back in the day, like ICQ and AOL instant messenger. They were huge back then, right? They, re they were like how we spoke to each other. Oh, yeah. I remember that. It was massive. Yeah. And, and Biddleby put all of those protocols into your IRC client because I was using IRC a lot. And I, I still do. So it's kind of aggregating all of those technologies in one place. Yeah. So all my messages came to my IRC client and it was so great. <laughs> That's so lovely. Do you remember what that first commit was like? It was actually just documentation. Um, so what I had done is I joined the IRC channel for that project and I sat there for like a month, like, cause I was very shy and I was scared of contributing. And the project leader um, was like, we need to update the quick start. And I was like, oh, how hard can that be? 
Okay. Turns out it was written in doc book and it was really hard. <laughs> and I like doubled the length of the, of the quick start. And he's like, Liz, this isn't so quick anymore. And I'm like, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but I, I put it in and like, that was my first. And so I, I actually, all I did, I didn't actually do like, there wasn't like GitHub or anything at the time. So I really just like emailed my patch to the project lead. And then he put it in and then he put my name in the readme for the next release. And that was like, the most proud moment of my life up until then. <laughs> I was like, that's me. <laughs> yeah, that must feel so cool. I I strangely um, admit that I haven't had that feeling yet because I haven't had that experience. And now you're making me want to go chase it. It meant a lot. And I mean, going on from there, I ended up meeting the project leader. Um, he worked for Google, actually. And my my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, was working for Google. So he was meeting him in the office. And I was like, oh, I, I need to go and meet him. And now we're friends. Like, it's just been since forever. So, and that's really a key part of my open source journey, too, is the relationships that I've built along the way. Well said. I feel like open source is relationships. You know, there's no way any of it could happen without relationships. And you've seen that repeatedly for you know since 2004 so um so it sounds like yeah it's a huge part and so in terms of relationships how do you feel like um those sort of get established like for someone who is just starting out maybe with their you know first commits or those kind of things how what's the best way to kind of develop those yeah it it ends up just happening organically um so i i eventually started working in the debian project and the ubuntu project as well and these were still things i was doing for fun um debian sort of became part of my job at some point i was doing developing packages and putting together packages to be included in debian as part of my paid work um when i got my first sysadmin job so in those roles, I would work with mentors in the community to do my technical work. Um, and eventually they sort of became friends because you talk about your packages and you talk about your work. And in these days, it was a lot of IRC. Today, you may be using some other chat protocol. Um, but, you know, as you're working through technical things, you also talk about your cats and you talk <laughs> about your dogs. <laughs> and then you just start getting to know, oh, and like, sorry, my kid had to be in this video call. And then they're like, oh, you meet their kids. Um, and so over time, um, one of the things that I started doing is going to events. So in the Ubuntu community, we used to have an Ubuntu developer summit, um, which was twice a year. And at these events, we would all get together in one city, um, community members and people who worked for Canonical. And that's really how we got to know each other. So we'd work on things all day long, and then we'd go out and have dinner together and just enjoy each other's company. Um, and through that, I've I made a lot of friends um, who I still hang out with today and still communicate with, even though we've all gone our separate ways, essentially. We still are socially friendly. So for one, yeah, just like being social in chat and two, going to the in-person events, of which there are actually more of them now than when I started. Yeah, there are so many of them now. And you know, I think maybe this is on everyone's minds, but I was I was just uh, took a peek earlier at at your website, uh, which is <laughs> princesslea.com, I think, which is great, and we'll talk about that maybe a little bit. But on there, you have a list of the events you're you're attending this year, and I noticed that you now have a bunch of them crossed off um, for this whole virus thing that's going around, and I would imagine that feels kind of sad to you. Yeah, it's it's been hard. Um, 
I mean, partially it's because my job is mostly going and speaking. And now I have like two months where I get to stay home, which is very unusual for me. And in some ways it, it's sad because I'm going to miss those events and I'm going to miss connecting with people in that way. Um, in other ways, I have a huge backlog of stuff that I'm really excited just to sit home and work on now, like blog posts and like video tutorials and some code patterns. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can finally get to my backlog because I'm not out speaking all the time. <laughs> so it's kind of a mixed bag, honestly. Yeah, both can be true. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's, it's all for the best and I, hopefully this passes quickly. Yeah, we'll see what happens. But, um, I, I agree with you completely. Like, uh, and I, and I've mentioned that before, how meeting people, you know, through some of these technologies, uh, you know, that we have to sort of meet online, um, through video, audio, uh, you know, all the text forms, but there's nothing like meeting in person. And, uh, so if anyone hasn't, had the opportunity to do that with anybody, even like a group of three people who meet in your town who are interested in Linux. Like, I think that's probably what's been really great for you, right? Is that those, those developers and people in the community that you met just by being involved, uh, necessarily all have something in common. And so then it's my experience, at least that it's easy then to connect with some of these people because you've already got some similar philosophies and, and things in common. So. Um, it's really lovely that, that way. And I, I got my start at Linux users groups, which are much less popular these days. Um, cause there's so many meetups of all kinds of things. Um, but it, that's a uh, Linux users group is where I gave my first talks. Uh, because the audience is like, it's not a conference. It's not a big, like fancy thing where you submit a call for papers, like in a log or most meetups, honestly, you just like email some person and say, Hey, I want to give a talk on this. And if you're upfront about like, I've never given a talk before, like, it's fine. I'm, like for most meetups, they'll be like, that's okay. Like, we'll be kind to you. <laughs> <laughs> but like starting with that, like, like just a user group where there's like maybe 20 people, it's still super stressful. And my first few talks I know were terrible and I was super nervous and like my voice was all jittery and I said, um, too much. But that's true of everyone, isn't it? Right. We all start there. Yeah. Yeah. But it was nice to be able to do that around like people I sort of knew in the community rather than like at a conference where I don't know anyone and I'm already scared. <laughs> yeah. Some of those conference rooms can be pretty big, filled with strangers or future friends, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> do you remember what that first talk was? Um, I, I'm pretty sure my talk was about uh, communication via the command line. So I think I was talking about like text-based chat things. So I was actually, I talked about Biddleby in that because that was the IM gateway. And I talked about a bunch of different like chat clients like Ursi and whatever else was available at the time. Yeah. And I don't think I had slides because when I looked back at it a few years ago, like I, all I did was like link to some resources. Like I linked to some like things on my website. And I was, I think I talked about screen and SSH and like ways you can keep your chat client running forever and stuff. Yeah. I will say that, uh, you're fairly prolific in your talks. Like you list them, you actually do a beautiful job of listing. I, I was going to say all of them, but I don't know if they're all there, but quite a few of them that you've given, uh, on your website. So if, if people want to check those out, there's quite a lot of them. Um, I did lend my ear to one of them. I think it was at uh, Linux Conf Australia, 
entitled Why Linux Sysadmins uh, Should Care About Mainframes, which uh, is some of what you're doing now. And maybe that's a nice segue. Uh, that talk, I would definitely say people should should check out to get a sense of uh, definitely your personality and the kind of stuff you're working on. But, um, you know, in, in about 25 minutes, I learned a heck of a lot of stuff. There's the word mainframe in there, and I know that's a lot of what you're talking and working about uh, these days. I think you were mentioning that the story of how you went from a small container uh, sort of startup to going into mainframes was an interesting story. So maybe you can (laughs) guide us through that. (laughs) Yeah. So I I mentioned that I worked on um, Ubuntu and Debian for a while, and that was like a hobby. Um, From there, actually, one of my contacts through the Ubuntu community hooked me up with opportunity at HP um, to work on OpenStack. So that led into me working on distributed systems. So I worked on the OpenStack infrastructure team for about four years. And in that role, I started playing around with containers because the infrastructure team for OpenStack, one of the things we were testing out is running jobs in containers for our CI CD pipeline. And so I was playing with containers a lot. And then when I left HP, I joined a container startup in San Francisco. And so that was a lot of fun for a couple of years. But at the end of that, I was like, all right, what am I going to do next? And I started reaching out to people in my community and figure out what I want to do for my next job. And that's when someone from IBM came over and said, hey, you want to work on mainframes? And immediately I'm like, I think you have the wrong person. (laughs) (laughs) Because like... In, in my head, like mainframes were this like obsolete technology and it felt like my job for the past six years had been trying to replace them because working on distributed systems and building up reliability and redundancy and resiliency and all the R words <laughs> um, on, on like cheap x86 hardware was like the goal of the future and that mainframes were just not really applicable. So, I ended up having a few calls with them anyway. <laughs> and I talked to some of the engineers and one of the things that they they impressed upon me was that not only are mainframes actually modern hardware, but there's a lot of really interesting open source stuff happening on them, including work with containers. So the reason that they reached out to me was because I was already like an industry person giving talks on containers and in the Linux space. And I was reaching at like Linux system administrators like myself who they wanted to reach and change their mind. Like they changed mine. So it, it's still a little weird being on the mainframe team with my background, uh, just because my I, I don't know anything. I mean, I do now, <laughs> but when I started, I I was really just a Linux sysadmin, and it's been this like learning journey over these past several months since I joined, of discovering things. And I think the the most fun I've had is talking to people who are in the mainframe space and show, sharing with them my discoveries, and they're like, "Why don't people know about these things? Like mainframes." They don't go down. They can survive earthquakes. Like, how did you not know these things? I'm like, I don't know, but I'm pretty representative of a standard Linux sysadmin. <laughs> so if I didn't know, this is the message I need to be delivering to people. Plus, it's really cool hardware. So that's been fascinating. I would agree with you completely how there's this gap, right? Like many of us, most of us, I would say, have heard the word mainframe, but usually associated with uh, either a 90s uh, animated series that I really love <laughs> with Dot and Matrix and all this. But um, uh, joking aside, like it, 
is usually something from the past, uh, something, you know, pretty popular in the 90s, maybe, but these days nobody really thinks of that. And so the talk uh, that I mentioned earlier that you gave really reinforced to me that, like, there's a real gap here. Uh, and it sounds like you're taking it upon yourself to really try to fill that gap and to inform pretty much everybody on the value of mainframes in today's sort of environment. Because as you described there, there's there are quite a few. Uh, could you maybe give a few here so that people can get uh, nicely curious? I think if you Google for like ode to the mainframe or something, there's like this montage of like all these mainframe mentions in pop culture. And it's hilarious. Really, <laughs> It's funny because you're like, oh, mainframe. But also like most of them don't make any sense, like hacking the mainframe. And like there's all kinds of like hilarious things in pop culture. And I was reading like a comic book there. I think it was like Wonder Woman or something. And they're like, there was like some strange quote about like, I am the cybernetic brain of the mainframe or something. I'm like, what is this even? <laughs> so it's hilarious <laughs> of what people think. And so why are mainframes special today then? Like, why is it worth reviving that concept? Yeah. So one of the st statistics I learned recently that was actually surprising to me was that IBM sells more mainframes today than they did in 1990. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. So in spite of the public perception, like there are actually more of them out there. And if you think about like going about your day-to-day -day business, every time you swipe a credit card, chances are your your transaction is hitting a mainframe somewhere. All of the airlines pretty much use mainframes still, except for like one of them. And again, like most of the banks, most insurance companies, most healthcare, um, it still all runs on mainframes. So one of the things that we like to talk about is that like if Facebook went down or even if Google went down and you didn't have access to your email like or or search, like that would be a bad day. But if the mainframes in the world all went away, it would be catastrophic because flights would stop, banking would stop. And what happens when all of that happens? Like things get very bad. Those are the essentials. It, they're, they're really like fundamental to our life. And they're all backed by mainframes at the end of the day. Like maybe you've got these microservices in front of them and all this stuff running on cloud, but they're still going back to a backend at some point that is backed by the mainframe. And so it's really essential that they are still working and that we have the talent to continue keeping them running. Um, so part of that um, has been bringing in new people on the Linux side because Linux runs on mainframes. It has for like 21 years, but also ramping up the, the college students who are learning the ZOS and the other proprietary operating systems that run on the mainframe, because that's where a bulk of this content is. Like people are still writing COBOL and they're still writing assembler for mainframes and we need new developers working on that. So there's like this DevOps on Z, because uh, that's what the mainframes are called, IBM Z. So I'm on the IBM Z team. So they call it like Z DevOps, where we're bringing like Jenkins and Git and a lot of the tooling around DevOps to the mainframe world. And that's been a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, it sounds like a real niche opportunity, really, because it sounds like what you're saying is we need developers here and it's really cool technology and it's essential for it to run everywhere. So it's not it's not going away anytime soon. So it seems to me like there's a real opportunity there for, you know, some people who might want to skill up or try something new, something different. Um, and I suppose that's exactly what you did, isn't it? 
Yeah. So, and it's, it's really been interesting being like, like the Linux person on the team, because there's definitely that happening in organizations where there's a mainframe team and they bring on the Linux people to run Linux on the mainframe too. And there's a lot of cross training happening. So I'm teaching my mainframe peers how to do everything. And I'm teaching them about like SSH and moving files and Linux and the, the Linux talent is actually really valuable in this space. And it doesn't hurt that it pays pretty well. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's helpful. <laughs> uh, nobody minds that. So my team, we, we like do university outreach. Um, we also have this program called Master the Mainframe that we run every year from September to December, which is specifically for students, uh, college students. Uh, we do a contest, we give out prizes, and what they have to do is go through a series of challenges. So we give them an account on the mainframe, not Linux, but ZOS, and then they work through these challenges to learn the basics of how to navigate the UI and write some basic programs. And it's really amazing. We had 25,000 students sign up for the program last year. Whoa, that is a lot. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I guess if you want to bring in some new, fresh, young talent, then that's kind of the way that you need to do it. But that that's a, that's a lot of, that's a big cohort for sure. Wow. Yeah, for sure. And and one of the really interesting things is that the students don't, like, I'd say like people my age, like late 30s, we have this idea of a mainframe in our head. But the younger students, they don't. They don't know what a mainframe, they've never even heard of one. Right. And they don't know that 90s sort of cliche uh, word, right? Exactly. So, so to them, it's like this big, super powerful computer. Um, we did a, a hackathon, or actually a data-a-thon with some data scientist students at uh, UC Berkeley a few months ago. And they didn't even know what IBM stood for. The company was just not on their radar at all. Like my first computer was an IBM 8086, but IBM doesn't make computers for normal people anymore. <laughs> so, so if anyone's listening and doesn't know what IBM is, it's International Business Machines. <laughs> Thank you for filling that in. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Got to include everybody. Um, yeah, there's a lot of history there, right? And um, many of us, you know, I'm, I'm sort of young 30s, so I remember the IBM ThinkPads and those have quite a reputation, right? But um, as far as, you know, you, you just don't see IBM in the sort of end user space anymore. And for good reason, they've focused on some really cool stuff. You mentioned some educational stuff. Uh, I know you've done some cool things uh, with the Linux Foundation around uh, the Open Mainframe project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that seems like two worlds colliding as well in a really beautiful way. So the Open Mainframe project is a Linux Foundation project that's built around a bunch of open source software products um, focused on the mainframe. So a lot of them are focused on interactions um, between like the older proprietary operating systems, which when I say older, it just means they have a really long history. Um, they're actually really modern in like they're still being developed and features are added all the time. So just saying that. <laughs> um, but the older, the, the old older operating systems, um, providing modern interactions with them that are open source. So there's a product project called Zoe, um, which allows you to have like a graphical interface um, that's run in a web browser. So you don't really need to install any software on your computer, like on your laptop, um, but you can interact with the workloads and all kinds of things that are running on the mainframe. Um, there's also like connections to your I like modern IDEs. So like if you're using like Visual Studio Code, there's like a main, like a plugin for Z that allows you to edit code and, and run different things directly through your, an IDE that you're familiar with. So you don't need to work 
in all like the guts of the mainframe and be like logged into a terminal. And all of that's been enabled through Zoe as well. It uses an API um, to connect through it. And so the open mainframe project, it's actually one of the things that convinced me to join IBM and take this role was because you know I believe in Linux and the Linux Foundation and the open mainframe project. I was like, listen, like IBM is putting some real money and real resources towards open source software on the mainframe these days. And so that was fascinating to me. Um, so there's a bunch of companies, um, Broadcom, um, Rocket, um, who are all like invested in the open mainframe project. So we're having our first open mainframe summit, I think in September. Uh, the call for papers is open now. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and it's really just about gathering more projects. Where's the summit happening? Actually, I don't know. <laughs> oh, well, we're going to have to go find out. <laughs> uh, that sounds cool. And and I could see why that would be a bit of a tipping point for you. Like, um, you know, just hearing the Linux Foundation's name is like, oh, yeah, that's familiar. I know they do good work, that kind of thing. But connected to some of the mainframe stuff, um, it seems like, okay, well, these are, you know, that with IBM is someone I trust. So uh, let's, let's dive in and dive in you have, right? Uh, but it also sounds like, there's kind of some cool, you know, you're sort of like trailblazing in many ways, uh, that, that area, which sounds kind of cool too. Yeah. And since I know that the Linux foundation has such a high bar for like approving projects, I knew that it was a serious investment when I knew they were involved. Which is always a good thing. Can I ask you about what you're running at home? Uh, because that piqued my interest too. Um, uh, what, what are you running on your computer over there? Uh, on my desktop, which I just rebuilt with this like brand new i7 processor and like lots of RAM. It's, I use the same case cause it's beautiful. Anyway, I moved, I moved my hardware, hard drives over, so I didn't reinstall, but I'm running uh Zubuntu and I still contribute to that project. That's one of the ones that I do for fun. Um, I'm, I don't do that much. Technically I'm the marketing lead. Um, but that's because I know how to use Twitter. <laughs> like a high bar on our team. But someone has to do it, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I use Zubuntu on my desktop, and then I still run a bunch of servers. So, like, even though I'm a developer advocate now, I still play around with servers a lot. So, I've got a couple servers sitting behind me in my office here. They're both running Debian, um, like my media and my backup server. And then where my website runs, um, that's actually a Linode uh, virtual server, and that's running Debian as well. And then I run a bunch of community servers for the Ubuntu community is still. And I put Ubuntu on those because I thought it would be bad to run Debian on them. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Amusingly, for work, uh, IBM treats uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux as a first-class citizen um, as far as, as desktops go. So when you join IBM, you can request Windows, Mac, or Linux. And so everyone on my team picked Mac, except for me. I wanted the Linux one. So it was great. They, they like shipped me this ThinkPad, like a really awesome ThinkPad. It's like a T480 and it's got like 32 gigs of RAM and i7 processor. It's a really dope machine. <laughs> um, and it had Red Hat Linux already installed on it. And it works with the VPN and all Slack and everything's already all set up on it, which is awesome because when it's my work laptop, I don't want to have to be fiddling around with the VPN and stuff. So everyone's like, oh, don't you want to install Ubuntu on it? And I'm like, not really. I mean, kind of, but then I'd have to set up all that stuff myself. And I wouldn't be able to call tech support if like the VPN breaks because they'll just like, oh, you're using something that's not on our approved list. So um, 
it's it's been fine. <laughs> well, and it sounds as well to me like you have a real interest in dipping your toe in a whole bunch of different distributions. You know, you you just mentioned some of the computers and soft uh, and software and and servers that you're using um, just for fun, and they kind of span a big collection there. So why not gain a little bit more experience uh, with Red Hat? Uh, in there as well, right? It's there's there's similarities and just enough differences that you can uh, skill up in that area too. Yeah, the only the only sort of family of Linux distros I don't really have represented here is uh, Suze, which is a shame because I have a lot of friends over there. You mentioned being involved in Zubuntu. Uh, I think you mentioned to me that you your your current machine is sort of an upgrade path from eight oh four. Uh, so you've been running that one for a while and it sounds like it's working pretty well. Um, I started, uh, my journey on Zubuntu. So that, um, hit really close to home for me and was kind of a nostalgic to hear you were running it too. Um, but to hear your involvement there, uh, continued involvement as well as your sort of deep involvement in, in, in Debian and Ubuntu as well, uh, really puts a smile on my face because it sounds like you've been doing it for a long time. And that you're not stopping anytime soon. I guess you probably don't have any reason to stop considering you're so uh, kind of, I guess, in love with it, right? But I heard as well that you were uh, involved in the Ubuntu Community Council for something like six years. Is that right? Yeah, so that's um, the Ubuntu Community Council. There's like two governing boards of the Ubuntu project. There's the technical board. And then there's the community council. Um, and so the tech board, they're mostly people who work at Canonical because they're the ones who have enough time to do all the technical work um, and make like s smart technical decisions. Um, the community council is more about like community logistics and making sure that people had all the resources that they needed in the community. Um, so I sort of did it like during like the golden age of Ubuntu community. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you call the golden age then? One of the things that happened with Ubuntu is it, like, everyone was super excited when it came out. So we're talking, like, 2008 to, like, 2014. It was going to revolutionize the desktop. We were going to have it on our phones and our TVs and everything. And then something really interesting happened was that it actually took off really significantly in the server space. Because for once, you had uh, an operating system that was backed by a company and was free. Um, because, you know, you always had Debian, which was really stable and great, and it's what Ubuntu is based off of. But Debian was not really equipped because it, it, there was no company behind it. Um, I did work for a company that would, that would support Debian, but it just wasn't in, in the big way that Canonical was supporting Ubuntu. So just the server side took off, and that's really the direction that Canonical has taken it in. So the community is much smaller these days. But when I was working on it, yeah, it was like all about the phone and all these exciting things that they were going to work on. And a lot of that has really dropped off, which was sad to see. Um, but there's still community efforts doing all that. Like there's the Ubu Ports project, which is still supporting the Ubuntu on phone dream. <laughs> and doing good things around it, too. Yeah. And I still have one of the Ubuntu touch devices. They actually released one from a Spanish company. So when I when I finished the the, the most recent edition of the official Ubuntu book, that was like my present to myself as I bought myself an Ubuntu tablet. <laughs> it was so sad. We added a chapter about tablets and things in that in the ninth edition of the official Ubuntu book. And that was like a new chapter. We, we wrote that from scratch. And then a couple of years later, they discontinued, Canonical discontinued their effort. And I'm like, oh, I just wrote a chapter about all of this. <laughs> it's so sad. <laughs> 
Yeah, but it was it was really exciting being on the community council because um, we worked with Mark Shuttleworth very closely. He was a member of the council as well, and it was an interesting time. I mean, definitely some trying times as we you know we we were also the arbitrators of the code of conduct. And one of the things I was really proud of is Ubuntu is one of the first projects that had a code of conduct. I think it may have even coined the term code of conduct in the software space. And it was one of the reasons I was drawn to the project because I had been working in Debian, which can sometimes be a bit abrasive. (laughs) And uh, the Ubuntu community was just so friendly and helpful and amazing. Do you think that explains much of why it's gotten to where it is? Because it sounds to me like that's repeated almost everywhere is that community is great. Community is great. Very welcoming. That was one of my first contributions like that. I hear all over and over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I see a lot of in, in the more successful open source projects that have contributors from elsewhere, I see a lot of things repeated. So I mentioned that we had these Ubuntu developer summits where we got together in person. That was repeated in the OpenStack community and the OpenStack community. I wasn't the only one from Ubuntu there. Like There were a lot of people who put a lot of effort into recreating that developer summit and turning it into the OpenStack design summit. So every six months, we all got together. Um, And now if you look at Kubernetes, they have contributor summits. And again, it's like some of the same people coming along and taking lessons from going into the past. So I'm really proud of how influential um, that all ended up being um, for projects even today. Even though Ubuntu doesn't do them anymore, you know, like the lessons have have modernized and come to the latest projects. That's a really nice way to put it, that that pride that you have in sort of helping develop those. Um, and now you're seeing sort of those six-month sprints almost everywhere, like internally for some companies that have a lot of remote people. Um, you know, we just did one with Jupiter Broadcasting a little while ago. Are they ever powerful to just get ideas happening and get people connected for the next six months. And there's just magic that kind of gets rejuvenated when that happens. So good on you for helping make that happen. <laughs> yeah. And so my, when I was working on OpenStack, my whole team was remote um, and we actually worked for different companies. So a bunch of us were at HP, but we also had contributors from Red Hat and Rackspace and all kinds of other companies around working on the project infrastructure. And so the sprints were really essential because there was, n- we couldn't get into an office together. I mean, we ended up sometimes doing that, but it was someone's office that we went to, right? Because we were distributed not only remotely, but across different companies. What a challenge. Yeah. And there's there's no way we could have done it fully, fully remote 100% of the time. We had to get together for those every six months. First for like, like social cohesion, um, but it was also important to get into a meeting room together and hash out some of the big issues because sometimes things would just get out of hand and we couldn't deal with them over chat right? Like we needed to get into a room with a whiteboard and all sit down together. So when I talk to people about remote work, that's one of the things I stress as well. I'm like, listen, like you can only do so much when you're in different places. Like I love remote work. I've been doing it for like over a decade now, but I need to get in a room with my teammates, like on some sort of cadence, (laughs) you know, socially. Of course, remote work does not mean 100% remote, right? I think that's a fallacy. Most people, when they first hear about remote work and they haven't experienced it themselves, that's often what they think, but it's not quite true, nor does it work. Yeah, and plus, it's it's a great way to... Okay, sometimes there's arguments between people. <laughs> <laughs> and if you get them together, oftentimes those are going to be worked out, like in person, because like 
people hold resentments and tone doesn't get communicated effectively, even if you're talking um, over a video chat. Like sometimes it's just not there. But if you get them together, um, get some tea, get some biscuits and hang out and just have fun together, like you can work through most problems. And there have definitely been personalities I've worked with who like people just like butt heads. But as soon as they get together, they're like, okay, you're actually a reasonable person. You're kind of cool. And I understand where you're coming from. I still disagree with you, but we can work together (laughs) and it's okay. Like that wouldn't happen if we didn't get them in a room together. Of course. And, and yet, you know, once you get that resolved, there's some beautiful things that can happen when you bring together people who have different perspectives and have different, you know, backgrounds and that, that kind of stuff. So, Really, really fascinating. That's what kind of worries me about this this coming year. And so we'll just sort of have to see how all of this sort of social isolation stuff shakes out. But I hope we can find a way, you know, to keep those connections strong because uh, they're sort of the lifeblood of all of this. Uh, Elizabeth, if you wanted to put a question out to the community, um, what would you want to send out there? It could be it could be something you want them to go see, something you want them to try, uh, maybe something to think about. Um, what would you like to put out there? So I want to encourage anyone, if they haven't contributed to an open source project and they want to, give it a try. Just like pick a project or actually you, you can even reach out to me and I might be able to help you find one. You'll spin the wheel and pick a project for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or maybe even like have a quick call and talk through what you're interested in and maybe we'll find a place for you, but just give it a try. It's, it's, it's terrifying. Um, but only at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love telling this story. I was, I was at the OpenStack, one of the OpenStack summits and I was on a panel and I was talking about code reviews and in code reviews, people comment on the, code coding patch that you proposed. Um, and that's, that's really scary because everyone is self-conscious about their coding skills. And so whenever anyone critiques their coding skills, it can be scary, especially when it's some stranger on the internet. So I mentioned that I had a patch that I put up and it had like 47 back and forth with me uploading new versions and people leaving comments and it ended up being like 47 changes, right? It was huge. And so I mentioned this during the panel And for the rest of the conference, everyone was telling me they're bigger numbers. (laughs) So so like, they're like, I had a patch that had like 150 revisions. And like, it was, it was the (laughs) funniest thing. And people like, I totally respect and think are brilliant. They're like, I'm like, you, you had that many. So I want to say like, it's terrifying to contribute to open source, but we've all, you know, made mistakes and been there. And like, I'm hoping people are friendlier with reviews, but if you don't get a friendly review, it's okay. It's not you. And it happens to everyone. <laughs> totally unrelated. But I I give away VMs on mainframes um, running Linux. Um, so if you uh, Google search for Linux One Community Cloud, um, for 120 days, you can get a free Linux VM on a mainframe. And you can like show the CPU stats to your friends. It's a different architecture from x86. So that can be fun to play around with, like toss your software on there, see if it works. Um, the first thing I did when I logged into one is I like logged onto IRC and like shared the CPU stats with my friends. Like I'm, I am, I am so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so you want to try that out? Yeah, it's, it's out there. Um, we, we do it to encourage development on the platform. That's lovely. And did you say 120 days? Yep. That's a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, just for playing around. And if you're an open source project who's serious about building on the architecture, I can hook you up with like 
a VM that you can add to your CI system forever. So nice. Wow, local hookups. That's good. <laughs> um, what is another sort of thing that you might suggest that people can try if they if they want to give that a shot? Um, I know you mentioned I was plugging into IRC, <laughs> but um, what's something kind of real world that might be fun for for people to give a shot? So the biggest thing, I since I work with open source projects, I just try to compile something on it. So whether it's your project or the f- your favorite application, um, but see if it works. And then see the weird compiling errors that come out if it doesn't work. Because the big difference between the mainframe architecture and x86 is that x86 is little endian. And the mainframe architecture is one of the last big endian architectures out there. So I've learned so much in the past year. (laughs) I mean, I've only ever really, I mean, I've played around with like Spark and ARM and other things, but those are all little Endian and like mainframe is a whole different world. Um, So if you want to compile some software, that's, that's fun. Wow. That sounds like such a gift. So thank you for offering that. Um, That's huge. Um, If people wanted to get connected with you and get in contact, say hi, maybe reach out to you for a VM, uh, where can they reach you? Um, you can just head over to princessleia.com. Uh, I've got my email address on there and everything, L-Y-Z at princessleia.com. If you want to connect with me on the professional side, it doesn't matter. I check my email everywhere, but I'm also L-Y-Z at IBM.com. So, and I'm on Twitter, um, at plea 2 Pretty much on everything is plea 2 So <laughs> easy to find. I think I, I would, people would probably get after me if I didn't ask you about your domain name. Um, I read that you've had it for quite a while. Um, Princess Leia, I would imagine you're a bit of a Star Wars fan. Is that, uh, am I off there? Or what? When I first got online, um, my first chat room was a sci-fi chat room. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to be Princess Leia on there, but that one was taken. So I was Princess Leia 2. And that's the P Leia 2 in my Twitter handle and on my license plate and like everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely. And I think many of us can relate to that, like finding the name that you want, um, whether it was on, uh, you know, ICQ or whatever, uh, kind of follows you, right? Yeah. And it, it's it's so funny because it's so unprofessional. <laughs> <laughs> and yet here we are. <laughs> Yeah, but my husband, my husband's like, oh, you should definitely like separate your work stuff away from the Princess Leia stuff because it's not very professional. And I'm just like, I don't want to work for a company that doesn't appreciate it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and I find the reality actually is that so many of us are interested in that kind of thing, no matter where you're working or how high up the ranks you are, right? Like, how many Star Trek fans have you met that are anywhere within those those uh, those ranks? So. Um, bring, I think that's a good filter. If, if someone doesn't want to work with me cause I'm having fun, then that's maybe not a place where I want to be. Right. So, um, so kudos to that. Um, well, Liz, thank you so much for chatting. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Yeah. You're welcome. 